In the event of a fire, there should be more than one way out. When you have multiple exits, you are providing some redundancy. If one exit becomes blocked, if one exit becomes unavailable, there is another route of escape. There will be an alternative. A second exit also helps people get out of the building more quickly. Well, you might reduce the queuing time if when you've got a very large population on the floor. This is MC Hugh, the fire engineering manager of BCA Logic in Australia. Retail, office and commercial spaces often have a higher density of occupants compared to residential. So in the event of a fire, there's a lot more people to evacuate through exits to safety. The higher up a building we go, the more redundancy an escape system needs to have as help at height is less readily available. Following the September the 11th terrorist attacks in New York in 2001, the US introduced requirements for a third exit from buildings taller than 125 metres, and this led some developers to look at elevators, or lifts in the UK, as the solution. In this third part of our look at fire safety in tall buildings, we're looking at evacuation and how one team of designers is making lifts the primary route of escape for one of London's tallest buildings. Welcome to Engineering Matters. I'm Bernadette Ballantyne, and in this episode, we're in London examining the fire engineering strategy for a major new tall tower in the capital, 22 Bishopsgate in the City of London, which is a major undertaking. 64 storeys of development. 270 metres in height. Which might seem small for our colleagues from Hong Kong and places in New York. Office for most of it, okay, except for the top floors where we have public use. Restaurants, bar. Uh, viewing gallery and, uh, and high-class uh, meeting rooms. The planned occupancy is 13,000 people, but from a fire safety perspective, it can house more. From a fire safety point of view, it was designed for 30 fire square meter per person as per the requirements of the, uh, of the UK code. The client is going to use it between 8 and 10 square meter per person. But again, that's flexibility for the future if tenants want to move into a call centre, for example, with a lot more people. Basement, back of house, and support services in the basement. So quite, quite a tall building for, for the UK. Second, second tallest building in the UK and Europe after uh, the Shard, just by a few metres. As we've heard throughout this series of podcasts, high-rise buildings present a unique challenge for fire safety engineers. And historically, guidance was not developed for buildings hundreds of metres tall. So we have to go beyond the standard to define what occupants will be at risk how the fire is going to develop, what are the uses, etc, etc. Not to forget we have people at the top floors of the building who could be school groups using the viewing gallery. We could have elderly people, we could have pregnant women, we could have people coming back from skiing with a broken leg. We couldn't have any type of, uh, of, of occupancy in there. Good luck asking them to walk down 300 meters worth of uh, stair flights. This is Roman Hawkeyegg head of fire engineering in the UK at consultant WSP, who was describing the project at the Tall Buildings Fire Safety Network Conference in London this summer. He explained that 22 Bishopsgate has an extensive suite of fire safety measures in its design. The evacuation strategy is phased, so the floor on which the fire is on is automatically evacuated, along with the floor above. Full evacuation sequences are then triggered manually by the fire brigade upon arrival. There are two firefighting shafts, 
a major fire command centre, and fire refuge floors, known as accommodation floors, protect inhabitants from fires on the floors below using mass concrete slabs which prevent fire spread. Fire detection systems and voice alarms are present throughout. Security lighting, sprinkler protection and a very high level of management are also part of the design. And contrary to the usual advice on evacuation, in the event of a fire, you should use the lift. So that lift evacuation strategy took a year and a half to develop uh, with the lift manufacturer Otis, the uh, electrical engineer cause and effect people, etc. But also City of London Building Control and the London Fire Brigade and the Fire Engineering Group from London Fire Brigade. So a lot of people involved. Any person, even fit person, you know, no disability, no particular physical uh, issue, will struggle to evacuate down 300 meters worth of stair flights. You will feel dizzy at the end. I can tell you because I've tried on the shard during one of the evacuation drills. You can't walk straight when you come to, to the end of the, uh, to the bottom of the staircase. We have people at risk on the top floor of the building, school groups, elderly people, etc. Fatigue is something that we witnessed firsthand on the World Trade Center evacuation process. People stopping, sitting on the stair flight and resting to catch their breath in order to restart evacuation later. But when they do that, they create a blockage in the evacuation flow. Using lifts as a primary evacuation route is highly unusual, although it has been done in France. In order to use lifts for evacuation, the lift shaft needs to be protected from fire. We'll hear in our next episode how pressurised lift shafts are offering solutions. However, at 22 Bishopsgate, the designer wanted to use conventional lifts and lift shafts for evacuation, and I'm going to leave it to Roma to explain more. So how does it work? In a very simple manner. Okay. The first question is, how is the building designed in terms of lift access? Because what we're going to do is, we have in our building, in this one, I think we have around 50 passenger lifts already, passenger and goods lifts. We already have a means to bring up people in the building, okay, within the morning peak time, lunch, in, lunch out, and evening peak time as well. We have the ability of bringing 13,000 people to the floor plate, to the office work, within a very quick turnaround. So the facility is already there. Let's just make best use of them, as opposed to adding you know, additional evacuation lifts. To understand this, we need to understand the lift arrangement. And we've included a link in the show notes to a number of diagrams from Roman's presentation that make this clearer, and it's really worth taking a look. The building is divided vertically into four fire evacuation sections at different levels and each is served by a different lift shaft, which are colour-coded in the design diagrams. Furthermore, each section is protected from fires in the section above or below it by the unbreachable concrete slabs we've mentioned before. The uppermost evacuation section serves floors 58 to 61 and is accessed by the red elevator shaft. The next evacuation level is for floors 42 to 57 and is accessed via the blue lift shaft. A third yellow lift shaft serves floors 26 to 41, and those below level 26 are evacuated using one of two stairwells that run the full height of the building. A pink elevator shaft runs the full height of the building from the ground floor to the viewing platform, which because of its position and the fact that it's going to be used by people unfamiliar with the building, is considered to be the most at-risk area for building occupants and visitors. The pink lift or the viewing gallery lifts. So these are accessible at the bottom and exit at the top only. They're shutter lifts all the way through. 
and they have a separate entrance. The high-res lift goes through the first two tiers and serves the top tier. The blue lift goes through the first tier to serve the second, and the yellow lift serves the first tier of the building. And we have our two stairs on the sides. We have what we call unbreachable slabs. Unbreachable slabs is a name we just made up, because unbreachable doesn't really appear in the dictionary. Um, so uh, gives us a bit of ownership for the strategy. Uh, you will see they're strategically placed in order to cut the building in three different, well, sorry, in four different parts. So what we do is simple. In case of a fire in one zone, one, two, three, or four, we actually ask the people to move normally towards the staircases as they would normally do in every standard building in the UK. And when they come to a specific floor, they transfer back onto the floor plates of our protected corridor in order to access this bank of lifts. The lifts we are using are all double-decker lifts. So you have two lift cabins within the same shaft working together, okay? Which gives us extra capacity when we want to bring people up, but also people down. So what we're doing is one stair actually transfers onto the top lift car, while the second stair transfers on the bottom lift car. So we do not merge uh, the two stairs while evacuating to make it more efficient. On the floor plates, we're using transfer corridors between the staircase and the lift lobby. As much as possible, we have used the technical floors in order to save space on the office letable areas. So these floors, for example, here, just under the unbreachable slabs, are technical floors. And the reason why we call them unbreachable slabs is because we don't want tenants to actually come in and connect end floors, including uh, making connections through those slabs. So we use the top floor of the uh, mechanical floor to make sure that doesn't happen. So in terms of our scenarios, far in zone one, I walk down three floors, go back into the floor plates through transfer corridor in order to access the lifts. I have a very short travel distance down the stairs for the most vulnerable people who actually are at the top of the building. The people who won't be able to evacuate necessarily a lot of floors by, by down the staircase. Find zone two, I do the same. I walk down to zone three and use the blue lifts. Basically, what I do here is make sure that people will be using passenger lifts that are physically away from the fire. The shafts are not serving, they're not even passing through. They are physically away from the fire. So there is extremely little probability that my fire is going to affect that lift. Either due to the flaming, the heat, the smoke, or even the firefighting water. Not to forget, we all think that fire and flame go up, but firefighting water actually goes down. And we want to make sure that stops, uh, that doesn't affect the, uh, the operations of the rest of the building under. So all the floor plates have a raised floor that can act as a massive reservoir for firefighting water, whether it is sprinklers or hoses, and all the slabs are sealed. The alternative level of discharge for information is level 7. So if a fire starts on the ground floor and prevents people from evacuating at the base, then lifts stop at level 7 and people can use the stairs to evacuate all the way to, to outside. We, we, have, we have done a lot of research into lift, uh, lift evacuation as well and uh, evacuation of disabled people. And it's very surprising to, to see how many countries and codes actually rely on human interaction. For example, evacuation chairs. Or just say, stay in the refuge and wait here, you will be rescued. Yeah, but how, when, by who? How am I kept informed of what's going on? You know, all of that is, is just not in place. 
the UK, I have to say, has been quite you know ahead of the game in in uh, in many aspects of that. Uh, but again, still away in terms of lift evacuation. So mobility impaired people, they will be using the farting lift for evacuation. Okay, so they don't use the passenger lift. And we don't expect them to walk down 10 floors worth of stairs in order to access an evacuation lift. The farting lifts will be used at the initial phases, stages of the fire by members of the fire control center to go all the way up to the far floor and pick up um, disabled people directly from the farting lobbies which contain uh, refuge spaces. So it's, it's a standard approach that we see in the UK uh, that has been uh, replicated here. So in terms of detailed sequence, how does it work? Typical example is a fire in zone two. I've got a confirmed fire detection in zone two. Four landlord fire wardens go to the fire lifts. Okay, these are the people in the control center who are there 24 seven in shift, looking after security and fire safety. A building of that caliber will have you know, heavy, heavy duty management. So the firefighting lifts go up, two wardens in each of the firefighting lifts. They stop at the transfer floors, the respective floors. So one drops out uh, on, uh, on the top cabin uh, lift lobby. The other one drops out on the bottom. And the two remaining fire wardens continue up to the fire floor in order to pick up disabled people. So they do the fire floor and the floor above to sustain the evacuation, uh, the phase evacuation strategy process. And also two landlord fire wardens go to ground floor and the first floor. And the reason for that is to make sure they push people out of the lifts when the lifts come to the ground floor. So the fire floor and floor above evacuate using the stairs. People transfer from the stairs into the lift lobbies or continue walking down. That's a very important thing. We do not force people to use the lifts. Okay. One of the main reasons why this strategy we believe is going to work well is because most of the building is for office use. People in the office, general members of the public, anybody, we have been told for the past 50 years, never use a lift in case of fire. And that's anchored in our minds. And all of a sudden, we ask people to go to jump in lifts in case of fire in the building. So that psychological barrier will, will have to be broken. But it will be broken with time. And the fact that we have an office building and people do six monthly evacuation drills, believe me, the first time they try the evacuation down the stairs <laughs> for 250 meters, they will sing twice the next time, six months later, uh, using the lift. People enter the evacuation lifts and the forwarding supervision and move to ground floor for exit discharge. Now, the way the lift movement works, and that has been the subject of many discussions with autists, actually, is they will work as shuttle lifts. As soon as we have a confirmed fire, the relevant lifts that will be used for evacuation will act as shuttle lifts. The lifts will only connect ground all the way to evacuation floor, up and down. One important thing is the lift will actually go up and down, not in parallel, but in, in, um, in, in a random manner. And one of the main reasons for that is to avoid having the massive piston effects created by four lifts going up and down in parallel into the same shaft. That will affect uh, the fixing rails, that will affect electronic equipment, etc. So they go up and down in, um, in a different random manner. The doors will actually nudge close like the tube in London. So the lasers will be disconnected automatically. People go in the lift, and if the doors close, they close. If the lift is not full by the time the doors are closed, never mind, it goes down. We can't wait, we can't afford to wait for people to be, the lift to be full in order for the doors to close or to leave the lasers on because those lasers will constantly be triggered and the doors will never close. Otis had to write a specific software 
to make that work back in their lab in, in the US. And on that project, that has been the main cost, actually, to implement lift evacuation. So once that software is already is, uh, is, uh, is built and in implemented, then we'll, uh, we'll be able to roll this out on the project at, at a lower cost, obviously. In terms of detailed design, so I mentioned about transfer corridors. So transfer corridors are absolutely key, not necessarily from a fire safety point of view, fire protection point of view, but from a security point of view. Because we are sending here people from the stairs potentially on an office plate back into someone else's property in order to get them access to the lifts. So for security reasons, we've introduced those corridors to ensure the transfer is made smoothly and not to impact on the operations of that tenant. You will think, well, actually, those corridors impact on the lettable area for the landlord. Yes, but as we said earlier, the positive impact in, in the level of safety of using evacuation lifts on how the landlord can sell or rent his premises to tenants is huge. A very simple argument. Commercially, if a tenant uh, lawyers, okay, they always pay the highest. Lawyers charge 500 pounds, 1,000 pounds an hour, whatever, okay? Ask them to evacuate 120 lawyers to evacuate from 58th floor all the way down to ground and then go back up half an hour later. The evacuation time plus the, 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 the time to return to function is gonna be an hour, an hour and a half, just for an evacuation drill every six months. How much money have they lost in that time? Take the lift, takes you 15 minutes. So that's a kind of argument that we have used as well for our client, developer, because that's what he's interested in as well, uh, to, to get that approved. Each tenant is supposed to have a tenant fire warden. I'm saying supposed because we don't rely on that. It's a bonus. Every tenant has a fire warden that is supposed to lead the evacuation and sweep the floor plate as well. So these people will ideally play a positive, they can only play a positive role in the process. CCTV, so useful to have CCTV and a good vision for the people managing the evacuation process in the fire control center. We will have CCTV in the staircases and also on the two levels of lift lobbies where people will be entering the lifts. Just for information, they know what's going on, they know how it's working, they know uh, when, uh, when uh, we have phase evacuation that the far floor and floor above have fully cleared and the people have actually moved down a few floors, they know they can then trigger further evacuation zones without taking the risk to actually jam uh, the, uh, the, the staircase capacity. Very useful CCTV. Voice alarm. You have eyes and you have voice. As soon as you've got that, you can manage anything you want in terms of evacuation from your building, you know, from the fire control center. Being able to see where the evacuation process is at and being able to communicate with the people and give them live directives. So useful. All of that is implemented in the building. Lift journey. We've taken two, example, two, two examples. Our first one is top public levels. Worst case scenario. 58M is a mezzanine level on 58. We have 1,460 uh, people each to evacuate from the three floors, okay? Viewing gallery and restaurant level. All seven lifts, why well, I say seven is because the eighth lift is actually the fafting lift, so it's been discounted. They take 280 people per run in a maximum capacity with a bit of safety margin. Six runs to evacuate uh, that many people for a total evacuation time of 15 minutes. Again, that's on the assumption that the, full, uh, the lift cars are full. Uh, we've made estimations of dwelling times for the doors and, and the time for, for the lift to go up and down. These are very high speed lifts for such a tall building. 
These values are theoretical and will obviously be changing when the building is, is being commissioned. And I quite look forward to actually commissioning that building because we will review all of those figures to make sure it really works for a real evacuation scenario. Typical office floors, the eight lifts are actually available, 320 people per run, seven minutes in total. Seven minutes to bring almost 800 people from 250 meters in the sky all the way to ground floor. Again, theoretical, when, when we do the real commissioning and add the reality on top of it, you might go to 10 minutes potentially, you know, a good safety margin, but still, you know, how long does, is that going to take you to evacuate so many people down the stairs? Unbreachable slabs, as I mentioned. The slabs are placed at key locations, okay, to protect the lift bank, basically. They are two-hour fire-rated slabs, and what we've done here is on the risers, we actually fire-rate vertically the risers, but also horizontally on those specific floors. Again, providing belt and braces at very specific locations. The cost of that was peanuts. It's about six motorized fire and smoke dumpers and a bit of fire bat on, uh, around the electrical cables, etc. And it provides a much more enhanced level of protection. As mentioned, it's been fully approved by City of London, Building Control, and uh, the Fire Brigade, including the Fire Engineering Group. At 22 Bishopsgate, the design team has created a comparatively simple solution of compartmentalising the building into four fire evacuation zones and using lifts to carry people from the nearest safe zone to the ground. As such, this approach could offer the third escape route necessary in some countries, in tall buildings, without building in additional staircases or bespoke evacuation elevators. In the next and final episode of our fire mini-series, we're going to look at the innovations and new products coming to market to help improve fire safety, from smart sprinklers to better designed fire alarm detectors and incident management apps. Engineering Matters is a production of Reby Media, produced and hosted by me, Bernadette Ballantyne. Special thanks to FireX International and the Tall Buildings Fire Safety Network, where we heard from WSP and the 22 Bishopsgate Project, the Fire Protection Association, Kingspan Group, Greater Manchester Fire Service, Queensland Fire Service, Colts International, Johnson Controls, the Institution of Fire Engineers. Mixing, editing and writing by John Young. Fact-checking by Rian Owen. Additional story development by Vilo Mitrovic and a big thanks to Jim Robertson Moore. Our theme music comes from JM Sounds with additional music from Pond5. Rory Harris is our executive firefighter. We'll be back next week with more. If you like this podcast, please leave us a comment or review on your podcast app, which really helps others to hear about us, or tell a friend to have a listen. Engineering Matters can be found on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Podcast Addict, Blueberry, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter at Engineer Matters or find us on LinkedIn and Facebook. Find out more about us online at reby.media.